we do not sit around tables in Washington and hold hands and sing kumbaya and make change happen. That is not how it happens. Um, it is counting votes. It is having difficult conversations. It is disciplining coalitions. And as long as you put, take, kind of take off the rose-colored glasses and kind of put on the work goggles, you can see your way through to whatever vision you believe in. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week, a guest and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to this episode of 80 Proof Politics. We're broadcasting today from Supra, a restaurant at 11th and M Northwest in D.C. that just opened about a year and a half ago. But it's a wonderful contemporary design, great bar in the back of the restaurant that focuses on Georgian cuisine. And I'm not talking about fried chicken and Coca-Cola here, folks. This is the country of Georgia on the Black Sea, former Soviet bloc country. And if you take a look at the menu, I think you'd want to come back and try it again and again. They've got great items like duck breast, sausages, roasted eggplant, and these kachapuri, which are just various styles of cheese bread, which I think we could survive on. Oh, I think an order has just been placed. Well done. <laughs> Uh, it is very much in trying to uh, capture the culture of the Georgian country. In fact, the word supra is a Georgian term for a feast with an abundance of food, flowing wine, typically hosted by a toastmaster called a, a tomata, who keeps the party going with jokes, stories, songs. I mean, I'm picturing a combination of a Greek wedding and an Irish wake without the guests of honor. Sounds perfect. <laughs> it does sound really good. <laughs> Uh, it, the owners, Jonathan and Laura Nelm, come by this naturally because they've had a long-time love of the Georgian culture and many things Russian in, in, in addition to that. In fact, the, with their daughters, lived in Moscow for three years. Is that right, Jonathan? Right. Um, and then have uh, replicated that experience in Supra. But Jonathan also comes by it naturally on his own because he was one of the first 50 American high school students to do the exchange program with Russia when we when the wall came down in 1989 and 1990. Huh? I highly recommend this place and it was recommended to me by our guest expert today, Tom Sheridan, founder and president of the Sheridan Group. Tom, welcome and welcome. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thrilled to have welcome you. Welcome to the neighborhood. Now Tom is one of the leading social advocates in town, has done this for a number of years and many high-profile causes that I'm sure you'll be aware of, uh, has advocated on behalf of cancer funding for a number of groups, The uh, was instrumental in the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, has been engaged in global poverty issues, human trafficking, trafficking issues, and most notably was uh, the, the, the main engine. I think it's safe to say, behind the Ryan White Care Act, yeah. which is a great story I'm going to let you tell great. in just a little bit. But Tom, 
has also recently published a new book called Helping the Good Do Better, How a White Hat Lobbyist Advocates for Social Change. And Tom, i got to tell you, I had a chance to read this book this weekend, and it Thank is you. a great read for anyone who's interested in how Washington works, and particularly on how Washington can work for social causes and organizations. But you have a lot of great advice and a lot of good pithy quotes and tidbits that really cements the concept of being an advocate. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to ask you in particular about your distinction between a social activist and a social advocate. So I think an activist is kind of raising the problem um, and kind of bringing attention around the problem, trying to heighten the visibility, heighten the concern, heighten the crisis. Um, I think a social advocate is the, is the problem solver. It's the person that has to, you know, take that energy that the activist gins up. The person has to actually do the job um, of getting the uh, the deal done, getting the the pro program created and or passed uh, is really the advocate. Um, so we're on the more practical side uh, of the equation, uh, more of the technician, the both art and science uh, professional uh, that has to put those strategies together and then execute on them. Is it hard to get activists to buy into that strategy? Sometimes there's tension between them, and uh, frankly, I think there should be. Um, I actually like that tension. I find it helpful. Um, I find tension on both the left and the right uh, important. I call it my airplane theory. Um, Explain that, because you talk about that in the book. I think it's a great analogy. So, yeah, I, I, I created it the hard way during the middle of the AIDS lobby, which was quite uh, difficult. Um, I'd act up on one side. Uh, and I had Jesse Helms and the uh, Christian right wing on the on the right side, so I left, act up, and right wing. And the tension between them, um, between them and through me, was intense. Had to be palpable. Um, it was palpable, and sometimes really challenging. I mean, act up locked me to my desk one day for the entire day. They picketed my house. They, you know, closed my garage. They closed me into the, the garage. At, they, you know, they threw an ice cream cone on me in a march one day. Like they were sometimes as angry at me as a at anybody else. But in the middle of that, my only way to make sense of it was that old thing about, you know, if, if both sides are mad at me, I must be doing something right. Yeah. Um, I kind of came, I came to a, a comfortable place in that uh, idea. And then that's where the airplane theory came from, which was, look, you need a left wing and a right wing to fly a plane. And it's the job of the social activist, the lobbyist, the advocate, per se, to think of themselves as the pilot. So don't try and take your wings off. And I, that happens with progressives. You think, mm. I, got, I have to quiet down my left side, or I have to control what the right wing is doing. Or ignore one side. Or ignore one side or the other. All of those are mistakes. Um, the idea is use the tension, uh, use the physics that's created in, in that moment to actually find your way to the middle. And particularly yeah. when social unrest is part of the dynamic of a movement, uh, politicians are forced to try and quell it. Um, and it, it pushes people to this place called the middle, and there's a lot of work that can be done there. One of the things that struck me in how you have approached that over your, your years here in Washington has been through coalition building. Yeah. And that's a, a real art form, yeah. and that yeah. has to be a constant hand-holding process. But I thought, uh, tell us a bit about your experience with One Voice Against Cancer, because that yeah. seemed like the perfect opportunity and probably a big challenge in putting a coalition together and keeping it together. Well, first and most importantly about coalitions that people have to realize, particularly in progressive coalitions, that that doesn't mean everyone gets along. Uh, and sometimes getting a coalition together, the first big hurdle is the fact that they're not getting along. Uh, frequently they are competitors. And the cancer lobby, was a, the One Voice Against Cancer effort, was a really good example of that. Um, I stepped into that space 
in the midst of what we called the body part wars. Hmm. So if breast, cancer got, if breast cancer got money, prostate cancer was mad. If brain cancer got money, pancreatic cancer was mad. Everybody was mad at everybody else, and they were really honestly competing against each other. Um, I stepped into the middle of that and said, you can compete against each other, but you'll, you're going nowhere. In fact, you're go kind of going down. Um, they had been mad at me uh, for a number of years because I was the AIDS lobbyist, and I would walk into the Appropriations Committee and kind of walk in with 100 national groups behind me, uh -huh. argue for my dollars, usually get them, and I'd be out the door. And they were still in the hallway fighting with each other with no consensus, no, you know, no agreements, sure. nothing. So when I approached them, I'm like, that's you have to do that. Um, then once we got to that space where it was a necessity for them, and it really did become a necessity, the most important about coalitions that I find, and, and we won't organize them anymore without this discipline behind it, everybody has to agree on the goal. Okay. If you agree on the goal, the process to get there becomes ordered and disciplined, and, the, and it's kind of worth it to go through the struggles to make those things happen. It's a lot of hard work, it's a lot of compromises, it's hand-holding, it's fighting, it's all those things. But when you're agreeing on the goal, you're pushing toward the goal. What happens in a lot of coalitions is they, they, they lose sight of their goal, they wound up in process, they wound up as a kind of a, you know, the circular firing squad, and they're very busy debating and fighting with each other, and they never actually get out of the room and get to the place that's most important. And in this case, that's Capitol Hill and up on, on to the Appropriations Committee or an Authorizing Committee. When you talk about the agreeing to the goal, do you find you have to move a bit from the lofty goal to the practical goal? Always. And, you know, coalitions are just good practice um, for doing that because Congress is going to require that anyway. Like, if you're not into compromise, if that's not what you want to do, do not go into the legislative court um, to get your work done. Uh, it is ultimately a game of compromise. Um, the game gets played well when you know you're going into compromise. So I always go in with a big fat cake with a ton of whipped cream on top. And I know exactly where I'm going to shape that whipped cream from. I know yep. exactly how far I'm willing to go um, before I get to the point where the cake's compromised. And then, then, then you stop there. But um, it, it is important to know that. If, you, if, you're, if you're not going in with the idea of compromise, you're not likely to be successful. Coalitions are a really good way to begin to practice that art of sure. compromise. And it makes you tougher and stronger and more effective when you do get um, into the legislative body. And this, by the way, this matters. This really works on Capitol Hill, but it also works in City Hall. It also works in the State House. It works in any. It works at a zoning board. Um, the the same coalition rules apply no matter which place you're playing in the public policy arena. So keeping with the um, pastry analogy, you have a phrase in here that's along those same lines. Yeah. I think. You've talked about keeping the goal in mind, yeah. sticking to the goal. But the phrase you use is, bake a bigger pie, slices are up for grabs. Explain that. So in the not-for-profit world, we like to call uh, a lot of our colleagues kind of uh, coopetition uh, with each other. So they are coopetition. They are cooperating around the problem, uh, the disease, the social problem that they're trying to solve. There's cooperation around it. But really, at a fundamental level, they also are competitive. They compete against um, each other for philanthropy. They compete against each other for federal grants and contracts. They, there's a lot of competition that goes on in the progressive social interest community. And, and what we like to do is just embrace it, is to say, we know you're going to be competitive. We know you are competitive. Um, but that can either be your weakness or it can be your strength. And what I like to do is kind of turn that around a little bit um, and talk about using your coopetition as a strength in the way you build your political strategy. Um, we recognize that you will be competitive and we want you to be competitive, but don't you want to compete for more as opposed to less? So if you can check your competition
get to cooperation, particularly at the political levels, the, the opportunity to compete for bigger pieces of the pie are there. And the, the, the One Voice Against Cancer example is a, a perfect example. Over the course of the 10 plus years I worked with them, they had more than a thousand percent increase in federal funding for cancer. Mm -hmm. um, when people are dividing up a thousand percent more, they are a lot nicer to each other um, <laughs> and a lot more effective, uh, you know, in, in the way they, and we're rewarded. I mean, that's how staying in the coalition became the reward uh, for being able to, you know, check some of your competition, check some of your ego, check some of your rage. I mean, disease lobbies particularly, right. people are dying. Um, it brings anger, it brings rage, it brings a lot of emotion, and you have to have a way to um, handle that, how to, how to unpack it, how to store it, how to diffuse it uh, when necessary, and, and the, the coalition model of coopetition kind of helps me help them do that a little better. Have you ever had to kick anybody out of a coalition? Yes. How that has yeah. to be extremely difficult. It is very difficult um, to do it, and there are consequences for doing it. Uh, but I tell people this all the time, I would rather have a coalition of a few that are focused and disciplined about what they want than a coalition of hundreds that keep you at the lowest common denominator. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is, a, it is a frequent fault, and I see it a lot, where coalitions will move consensus to the point of almost being irrelevant in the solution to their problem because they, they don't want to lose anybody on the way there. Um, I, I don't value that. Um, I'm, if the coalition isn't promoting the highest common denominator, it isn't actually valuable yeah. for the members and it's certainly not valuable for me to be working on it. Like right. you don't need me to boil down something to uh, you know, a toothless resolution. Like anyone can do that and Congress is more than happy to pass it and say they did, they did a good job recognizing your problem. Um, that's the worst value, uh, but a common um, mistake, a, a common problem uh, in coalitions. So I'm curious how you, and I know there's no template necessarily or one size fits all approach to this, but now once you get this coalition built and you've agreed on a goal, you have to implement some tactics yeah. to get that ultimate goal accomplished, particularly here in Capitol Hill or within an administration. Yeah. Right? What are some, get, pull on one of your examples and give us some, a sense of the tools you do use in that. So normally what I ask in coalitions, because in, in the not-for-profit space, rarely is there money, sure. um, real money on the table. So what we rely on is in-kind support. So I say to people, look, there's no free rides. No one's coming to this coalition meeting to write your newsletter, and then we're never going to see you on Capitol Hill. So we schedule meetings. I say everybody, every Thursday afternoon for the next six weeks, everybody's giving me your schedule. I have control over you from 1 o'clock in the afternoon till 6 o'clock at night. It's a sweat um, equity. It's sweat equity, and yeah. everybody shows up, and I take names and attendance. I was raised by nuns, so I'm really good at the, you know taking names and attendance. I know who's there and I know who's not. Um, and it is when people don't show up, they don't do their fair share, um, that you discipline folks um, for doing that. And it is hard to do it, but frankly, once you've done it, coalitions are then paying attention to you in a very different way. Um, so I always tell people, if, you, if you're hiring me to be Miss Congeniality, you hired the wrong guy. Um, you know, I'm much more the, the, I'm much more the nun. Um, you know, there are rules, there's discipline, uh, you got to show up, you got to do your work. Right. No rule. rulers. No, no rulers. rulers. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, my wife, I had a wrist. <laughs> uh, so you have you have to create this strategy. You have tools to move forward. You talk about this in the book, and it resonated very well with me because there's a political scientist by the name of John Kingdon who talks about the, the three fluxes of policy creation. You have to have all three of his elements to be yeah. successful at policy creation, and those three are a recognized problem. Yeah an offered solution to the problem, 
and the ability to move the political will. Now you talk about that in a little bit of a different sense, but it echoed with it's me. Very you similar. Three P's. Three P's, yeah. Um, so my three P's are, uh, I combine the first two of John's into one called policy. Okay. So you have to have both a problem and a solution. You have to have both. Yep. Um, the second thing you have to have is politics, and that's people. It's the power of people to use their citizenship uh, in an effective, disciplined, and passionate manner. I mean, uh, I'm a big believer, and I say this all the time to people, politics is ultimately a game of passion. Um, so you need those passionate people. That's your politics, particularly for the not-for-profit sector. We don't have money or PACs or those kind of things to, to, to really um, deal with. Then the last piece is press. My, the newer one for me is press, yeah. and that's how the community writ large endorses your problem or your view of the problem. They are basically saying your problem is a priority and your solution is an imperative. So when you get um, the editorial board of your newspaper to agree with you, to call on Congress to do a better job, when you get a feature article you know, focusing on both the problem and the solution you're offering, when you get the press involved, you get a much broader group of people um, committed to it and agreeing with you. It's your, it's your hallelujah chorus um, yeah, right. behind you. So the press um, is not the end game. The, the press is not the end game. It never is, and I know my friends in the communications field get mad at me when I say that. <laughs> I get a lot of feedback when I say press is a tactic, it's not a strategy. <laughs> <laughs> well put. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. Well, what has been, now you, as I mentioned at the outset, you've been involved in a number of high-profile yeah. social causes that have been highly successful. Uh, what prompted you to set up the Sheridan Group? So I just finished uh, five years, almost five years at the AIDS lobby. So I ran the domestic AIDS lobby at the AIDS Action Council for five, almost five years. And it was some of the best work I ever done, uh, but it was also some of the most exhausting uh, work I'd ever done. And I found myself at 30 years old really thinking I'm going to burn out if I stay in single-issue politics. Um, single-issue politics has real um, advantages, uh, and it was a great gift to have done that as a young person. Um, but it has real disadvantages, too. Right. Uh, you can stay in that tank for too long, um, and it changes you. And sometimes it doesn't change you for the better. Um, and I kind of just knew that. I, uh, you know, I went with my partner, my now husband, uh, to Africa for my 30th birthday. I had this dream of hiking Kilimanjaro since I was a kid. Wow. Um, so, and everyone thought I was nuts, particularly my parents. And they're like, what? <laughs> so uh, I went to Africa and hiked Kilimanjaro. And literally at the top of Kilimanjaro, I said to myself, I'm going home. And I've got to I've got to figure out something else to do. I, I have to figure out a way to leave um, this yeah. work, yeah. but I didn't want to leave. I wanted to leave the specific, the single issue, but yeah. I didn't want to leave the work because I thought we just created something that no one thought was possible. We took really dust and you know and created a sphinx um, out of it. So uh, I didn't want that experience to be lost, and I didn't want the 
um, the energy, the enthusiasm, the strategy uh, to go kind of away. So what I thought I would just do is come back and say any group that looked like and felt like what the AIDS lobby was five years before could come to me and I, I couldn't do the same thing. It's uh -huh. a different thing, but uh -huh. I could use their assets um, as creatively and as effectively as I did for the, the AIDS community and then build them something that would actually yeah. be effective. So it really started out as an idea um, to do something for a little while. I was actually um, hoping to go home to run for Congress in New York. Um, and so the idea was to do it as a consultant because it would uh, it would leave me a little bit more money than I was making, obviously, at AIDS Action Council, potentially sure. more money. Sure. Um, so I could, I was, my goal was to bank a year's worth of salary um, in a year and then go home and run in the uh, 1994 uh, congressional midterm elections, which is the election Clinton well, got crushed in. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, so, you were against the way. Way against the way, and, yeah, and I, yeah. I wound up not running, but um, but that was the intention. So the Sheridan Group was like people say, "What was your business plan?" I'm like, "Well, I'm an MSW, not an MBA. <laughs> um, I didn't have one." Uh, is the truth of it? We did not even have a marketing strategy um, for really the first ten years of the firm. Um, you know, we never wanted to be. I never wanted to be big. It was always really important for me. My father was a small businessman, okay. um, and he said to me when I opened the firm uh, that the one thing you should never do is is create an overhead that makes that forces you to take business you don't want. Oh. Um, and so I just kept that in my head the whole time, which is I wanted to do the quality work I wanted to do, and you know, we only grew to that size and we only staffed to those kind of uh, imperatives. So we never, you know, real estate, I mean, I, I own the building where the office is now because honestly it was too cheap to pay rent uh, and it was too expensive. Um, well, I never yeah, wanted sure. to be K Street. I always kind of wanted to be M Street or something a little off the beaten track. It's kind of both our reputation and our culture. Um, right. So it was, um, we have a very, we once uh, had a class of MBA students, you know, come in and do a project around us, and um, basically, you know, they got an A, but I got an F. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. So uh, you've obviously made a good business mm -hmm. out of it. Uh, what has been? Uh, it, it seems too easy to ask you the most rewarding cause that you're involved in because they all seem extremely rewarding. Yeah, it's like picking your children. You yeah. can't you can't choose how favorites. Would, how would you do that? But which was the most challenging? The most challenging, um, in terms of maybe the goal and the strategy to get there. You know, I actually think the international uh, AIDS epidemic with Bono was the most challenging. Um, and it's interesting because they had more assets. They had the world's biggest rock star, right, as, right. as an asset. Um, but how to use them, and when to use them, and how not to overuse them, um, and how to you know he was Irish and not American, so the political fodder there was honestly limited. Um, and the problem was so big. Um, yes. That it felt like, you know, it felt like trying to boil the ocean. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And Bono, you know, he wanted poverty and AIDS linked. And you know, when I first sat down with him, I was like, like those are two almost too big in and of themselves problems to take on. Um, so figuring out a way to build that, and you know, international um, spending, international development issues are the hardest issues to bring to the American public. Yes. Um, people have a lot of uh, myths uh, about how much we spend and whether we should. And, is you know particularly right now with America First mentality, um, yeah. it's hard to get those issues uh, moving forward. You don't have in for my work as a not for profit. What I always have is I always have constituents in the in the domestic place. I always have you know people who are you know getting services from those programs. Our family members at the disability community, mm -hmm. nothing, nothing better than a disability community with parent-driven yeah. advocacy. They're fierce. I had none of those assets um, going into well, creating the one campaign. 
um, and building it, creating it, uh, and doing it around the complexities of working with a rock star, um, both with his assets, but also with the liabilities that came with it. Uh, that was really challenging. Once you got past, well, once you realized it was Bono and not Bon Jovi. <laughs> yes, what, an embarrassing you, story about my cultural <laughs> relevance, but yes, true. Once you got, uh, uh, once you got past the, you know, the fact that he is a rock star, yeah. that he is a global yeah. icon, he's a one-name person. Right. right. How did you find working with him in terms of the best way to utilize his time, his energy, and his enthusiasm? You know, thank God. I mean, this is Providence more than anything else, but we, 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 we never had a disagreement about that issue. He didn't want to be used as a celebrity, he, he, but he knew he could use his celebrity, yeah. but he, wanted, he, wanted to be, he really did not want that model. Um, he wanted to be smart. Uh, he wanted to be thoughtful. He wanted to bring a, a level of commitment um, and a sustainable sense of energy to the table. So he started in the right spot. Um, he'd done the debt relief uh, campaign before he and I worked together oh, in 2000. Right. So right. he had had an idea of what that felt like, but he also had an idea when you're working on a debt relief, it's, it was a 2000 initiative, it was a millennial uh, initiative. He knew that this was not going to be a one-off. You weren't going to. It wasn't like an election where you're going to win on a certain day or lose on a certain day. Mm-hmm. Um, he knew that this would had to be built over time, and he wanted people to respect him for his passion for the issue and his credibility on the substance first before right. he put himself out there. Smart. Um, in the so we spent three years working on the issues and the ideas, what became PEPFAR, what became the Global Fund. Mm-hmm. We spent three years incubating those issues amongst ourselves and talking about them quietly in small meetings on Capitol Hill where we didn't do any press or any visibility. Um, he went very humbly and said, tell me what I need to know and do to be effective in your space. So like, learning the process. Learning the process, yeah. yeah. I don't That's know if I wrote this, I can't remember if I wrote this in the book, but um, he walked into Pat Leahy's office one day, or really early in the process, and he said to Leahy, who's Elvis? And like, <laughs> Leahy, Leahy's like, what yeah. are you talking about? Like, who's Elvis? Um, and, he didn't, and so Pano's like, like, who's the guy? Like, who do I have to like talk to? And, and Leahy like schooled him on like, we're all Elvis. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, at the end of the day, everyone thinks, every senator thinks of themselves as the Elvis. Yeah. Um, and for Bono, that was a really remarkable moment. Like he, and he sincerely wanted to learn. Um, and, and by the way, is wicked smart um, and a really quick learner. And then very um, people savvy, very uh, people savvy. So I would characterize that as kind of the glam side of what you've been doing. All right? <laughs> but you talk in your book about a lot of things that happened that are far from that. They're far from that. Right. right. And oftentimes decisions have to be made as a... a legislation is moving through as a budget line is threatened that aren't always pretty and they're really hard to, and oftentimes you have to be creative to come up with a solution for that. I'd love for you to tell the story about the um, the, the funding formula for AIDS yeah. care in the Kennedy bill. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it, there's a lot of mythology around how this stuff gets done. So mm-hmm. here's the non-myth side of uh, that story. So we were trying to create a bill in the middle of the AIDS crisis that would get money as quickly and as effectively to the most affected places in the country. So we went to a CDC document called the MMWR that said how many cases yeah. of AIDS were reported in those cities and states uh, and how many people had died. 
Um, and we basically said, is there a threshold by which we can define the hardest two places? We decided that we were going to go with a disaster relief idea. Yeah, that so we, a FEMA-like approach. A FEMA-like approach. Right? Okay. So we're like, we have to treat this like we would treat another natural disaster, but in this case, it's a public health disaster. Um, so we were like, okay, so when you do that, you have to find locations. So how do you define what a disaster is and where it is? Um, and when we went through the first chunk of those cities, there were five at the top of the list, um, none of which was Boston. <laughs> and I was pretty clear yeah. Yeah. that we weren't going to do this bill unless Ted Kennedy. I, we had no friends at that. This in this moment, it is 1988. Yeah. Like I had like no. I, Nancy Pelosi had just gotten to Congress. She and Barbara Boxer were my two friends on the on the. Thank God I had these friends, but uh, with my two friends on the House side and Ted Kennedy and uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan were mm -hmm. my friends on the Senate side. Yeah. So, out of a hard count of 535, I had four. Um, so, but you I had knew a good four, I had a great four. Yeah. I mean, I. I you know, but I tell young people doing this, like, never underestimate, even when the numbers are small, look at the quality of that number and decide whether you have something that's worth working with. Um, so those, um, I knew we weren't going to, I could not ask Ted Kennedy to do what I knew was in a ginormous lift legislatively to really put the first historic piece of AIDS legislation out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, Nancy Pelosi got reprimanded by the leadership of the House for saying the word AIDS on the floor. Is that right? That year. So, like, we were not, I mean, it's hard to believe how bad it was then, but it was awful. Um, and so I, I, so I just said to the group I was working with, eight, eight service organizations, one of which was a group called AIDS Action in Boston. Yeah. Um, I'm like, Boston has to be on the table. Uh, yeah. And um, Larry, uh, who was at the table that day, was like, yeah, Boston's got to be at the table. I'm like, Larry, it's not really about you. It's just like I, Kennedy has to, you know, he has to get, have something politically that makes sense to him right. uh, in this bill. And uh, so Boston was number 10. Um, so the first 10 cities in the country that were included in Ryan White um, included the city of Boston, and that's why the number and the threshold was chosen as it was. Now, I've been to training sessions all over the country, and people are training on Ryan White, and I've listened to professors who have done you know, academic studies in this, no offense to you know, your Archer friends, um, I've, you know, I've done it, uh, and they go wax and wane about, you know, it, it must have been a combination of these factors weighted against these dynamics, and I'm like, nope, it was <laughs> Boston. And everything about Boston got in on the list. <laughs> so, uh, I would love for you to also explain this phrase you use a number of times in the book, which uh, rings so true. Your thank spank yeah, approach thank and spank. to yeah. dealing with Congress. So the thank and spank is you have to be relevant um, in order for anyone to pay attention to you on Capitol Hill or in any other political environment. And again, this the zoning boards, you know, city halls, state houses, it's the same thing. You have to be relevant. Um, and then people have pushed me over the years to say, well, what does relevant mean? And I boiled relevant down to meaning thank and spank, which is that if you don't have the ability to reward people for doing the right thing or punish them for doing the wrong thing, and, and you know, you could say that in a fancy way, like accountability matters. Um, but if you don't have that factor, why should anyone, and particularly on issues I've worked on, like very hard issues, controversial issues, you know, nascent issues that don't have big lobbies or, you know, lots of political power immediately right. at their disposal, you have to have something that says there's a consequence for you not paying attention to this. Yeah. Um, and if you're not thinking about that and you're not honestly articulating it in a respectful way, not in a threatening way, but in a respectful, mature way, mm -hmm. you're, people are not paying attention to you. Um, so what are some spank examples you've had to use over the years? We well, used a lot of them over the years, but uh, during the anti-tobacco lobby, which is uh, did not make the cut for the, for the editing of the book, sadly, but um, during the anti-tobacco lobby that I, I ran, um, we really had a, a difficult time um, with with bipartisan members of Congress, and particularly leadership folks, because the tobacco lobby oh, was yeah. so 
was so strong and so rich. Yeah. Um, and people literally could just pay their way through hard votes um, because we were just a public health community and we were never going to do anything. So we got one particular funder to uh, let me run newspaper ads. Um, and we basically took all the leadership of the House and Senate, bipartisan, right. and we said, when the country was asked whose side were you on, will it be, and we drew a line down this full page newspaper ad, Big Tobacco, and put the logos of the Big Tobacco companies, or kids, and we put pictures of kids. And it was the campaign for Tobacco Free Kids was the, it was the coalition yeah. ever that we were running. Right. But we put the question to them publicly. We will hold you accountable for having answered this question, who did you side with when the, you know, the, the health of the nation was at, at risk? Big tobacco or kids, um, yep. and it really pissed off the leadership on I'm both sure sides. It on both sides yeah. of the aisle, sure um, they were really mad. Which is that is you're playing hardball, and I was like, and one particular friend who was in leadership at the time was really mad at me about it because I ran it in his newspaper in his state, um, in his hometown. Um, like, how dare you run that ad against me? It's a that's a threat, and I'm like. Do you know who I'm up against? I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm up against the tobacco lobby. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to play softball. So could you track the accountability measure? Could you, could you see if they would uh, change their position? Or? So we, we did find that when we said we will go public with this. Mm -hmm. We will run ads like this against you in your district. We will make this an issue for voters. We got a lot of people who wanted to do the right thing but didn't have any incentive to do it yeah. by showing them what that spank might potentially look like. We lost that debate, as you may sure, remember. We, we lost it on a technicality. We lost it in a filibuster. We could not break the filibuster that Mitch McConnell led. But we broke all but two um, of the Republicans we needed um, to get that uh, voting. So we lost by two. Which for the, for the public health community, at that moment, the public health community up against the tobacco industry. Mm. We had a nine-week debate on the Senate floor, the longest Senate floor debate other than the Civil Rights Act of 67 is the longest one ever. We were on the floor for nine weeks. Um, like, and sustaining in that nine weeks was, like, it, like I lived at a Holiday Inn on Capitol Hill. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't really, I think I maybe went home twice the whole time that, that was going on. Um, and it was... Coordinating so, tag team politics everything, for the right, floor. For floor, yeah. And, you know, votes and amendments and second yeah. degree amendments. And it was a, you know, it was, it was exhausting. Um, sure and probably the most exhausting of all the, the all the things I've done over the, the almost thirty years I've been doing this. Um, that was an amazing one, uh, but it was and, but it was really hard to lose on a technicality, and we lost for money. So what McConnell said to those guys was, "I will pay for ads that will help you inoculate yourself mm -hmm. against these public health folks." And I did go to mm -hmm. the public health community. We had a war room meeting a week before that vote, and I said, "If we can come up with a half a million dollars." and threatened to run ads of our own using the American Cancer Society's logo, the American Heart Association's yeah. logo. Use your brand yeah. against their brand. And you know, and half a million dollars was nothing compared to what the tobacco industry was oh, spending sure. and right. willing to spend. Right. Uh, but if we had it um, and we could at least threaten it, um, I thought we could get to those two votes. Um, I, and I knew we could get to those two. They were both vulnerable mm. re-elect members. Uh, so in the so, end, they spanked your spank. They spanked. They out-trumped my spank. But you know what, the, the story there um, is there's great wisdom in losing. Well, I want to circle back uh, in, as we wind down our episode here and ask you about how you got started. You mentioned that you have a master's in social work. I do, yeah. So you were a social worker by training. Yes. You had an idea to do what with that? So my first not to I, come to Washington and not to run No, my, my first job was uh, working with adolescents. Uh, my first internship was working with adolescent schizophrenics in a state psychiatric hospital. 
And I realized six weeks into it that I was going to do no good for nobody um, in that situation. I was you know, unlocking doors, going into day rooms where people were mostly drugged and were likely to spend the rest of their lives. And these institutions were honestly horrific. Um, so I, I decided that was not going to be what I wanted to do. But I happened to have met another social worker who took a job working to deinstitutionalize people coming out of uh, institutions for the mentally retarded in New York after deinstitutionalization. Um, so she had started, she was like, and she said, you know, come work with me. Um, and my first job was to work on the zoning boards because we couldn't get the group homes open unless we got the zoning boards to agree. And the first zoning board was happened to have been in my hometown. Okay. Um, so that was the, what caused that's what created the politics. And it caused my mother to shop in New Jersey for uh, a number of years, exactly right. which I didn't know about for years until years later, until I went home to run for Congress. And she's like, you cannot do that because uh. I, I cannot keep shopping in New Jersey. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Are you talking about? Um, so, <laughs> you go from zoning board to DC. I went to zoning board to DC. So, no, there wasn't the, the zone. Well, we got the houses open, okay. um, and we were really successful. And I loved my job. And Ronald Reagan got elected president. Um, and he basically went through a series of budget cuts that basically collapsed the entire social. We built a house out of a card, a house of cards, right. um, social programs, right? So, it was you know, food stamps was our food budget and. You know, CETA, uh, the old work program, was where the residents worked in community jobs. So the whole thing was hobbled together. Um, and Reagan came in and blew the House of Cards straight down in his first budget. Um, and we organized. Okay. Um, and I got the residents and the staff and the family and friends of everybody that were in those houses. And we went to our congressman's office. And we kind of raised hell. And we brought the press with us. Yeah. Um, there's and there's my P. And there's my P. Uh, and we brought the press with us. And it rattled the congressman. Um, badly, and this is when we had moderate Republicans. Right. Um, the and it, 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 of the yeah. world. Well, this is Ben like Gilman, that. right? Oh, so sure. same yeah. this, uh, Hudson right. River Valley, so the yeah, neighboring yeah. congressional district. Um, it was Ben Gilman, and it rattled them mm -hmm. badly. Um, and we were able to kind of create this energy, and we were able to push back pretty effectively. And we got a bunch of Republicans to push back on those budget cuts, and we saved those programs. The threats continued through all well, it, sure. through every administration, Republican administration, since we've, we've yeah. faced these kind of draconian ideas of social policy spending and cutting, um, but we were successful. And the National Association of Social Workers, for some reason, was paying attention. Um, and they basically said, we have a fellowship, one. Um, one student can come to the national headquarters, and you can do whatever you want for the year, uh, and we will pay you to do it, um, which was interesting. And we will provide uh, your master's program, uh, as long as you qualify for a master's program. Uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. So okay. they put a package together. It was the offer you couldn't refuse. It was the offer my parents said I couldn't refuse. Um, <laughs> and so uh, so I packed my bags and moved to D.C. So the fellowship lasted one year? One year. And then did you find, uh, did you go to AIDS Action from there? No. Okay. Um, so the fellowship was, I created a political action committee for the National Association of Social Workers. Oh. Uh, my last project before ending it was to give them a presidential endorsement uh, process to go through. I mimicked it on NEA. Mm -hmm. uh, the National Education right. Association had a really good right. one at the time. I was talking to the Mondale for president, uh, the first campaign, the political director for Mondale, about how to do delegate selection. Um, he said to me, um, I had applied for the Peace Corps and gotten in, so that's what I was going to do after the fellowship. Uh -huh. um, I was talking to Paul Tully uh, about delegate selection one day, and he said, what are you doing when you graduate? And I said, I'm going to the Peace Corps. I'm going to Africa or El Salvador, depending on how good my Spanish wasn't. Um, and, uh, and that was it. He said, well, why would you work in a foreign country when you can help save America? And I'm like, well, what are you talking about saving America? He's like, you're always talking about how much you, you know, dislike Ronald Reagan and his policies. He said, Walter Bondale's going to be 
beat Ronald Reagan, um, and you can work for him. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And he said, I'll give you $15 a day, and you're leaving for Iowa, um, like, next week, like, the week oh. after you graduate. And, and I did. Um, I said yes. Really made my parents angry. Oh, sure. Um, uh, but I said yes, and I went to Iowa, Maine, Wyoming, Oklahoma, Kansas. I traveled all over the country um, organizing for Walter Mondale. And so that's where the politics really got um, steeped. Um, we what, lost. what was a typical day like on that? You were organizing people to come yeah. out for rallies, to turn no, out the boat? No, caucus goers, turning out the boat. Yeah. Caucus in Iowa. But like, sure. I'm, a, yeah. I, you know, I'm a kid from New York. Right? right, so and I'm you know raised born in the Bronx, raised just north. Like I didn't really realize what an agricultural economy looked like. I didn't. My I was also a vegetarian at the time. My okay. first event with Walter Mondale was the Hormel meat packing plant oh. in Sioux City, Iowa. Oh. Very disturbing. Yeah. When people say about politics, watching sausage get made is a difficult yeah, thing yeah. to do. I actually did it. Um, it's really <laughs> difficult uh, to do it. That's the Where's um, the Beef campaign, isn't it? It was Where's the Beef. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I did not come up with that line. Oh, that was all his. Bad. It had nothing to do with me. It, it certainly opened your eyes in both yeah. the best ways. Um, like when you have to talk to people, caucus goers in Iowa, about what their life is really like and you're living with them for three or four months as I did, you really get to know that politics is very personal. So, Tom, in conclusion, what kind of advice would you give to someone who wants to come to town and make a difference? Someone who maybe has been a social activist and sees the value of being the advocate now. What, what should they do? So the first and most important piece of advice I would give to somebody is to not get trapped into the you're too young um, space. And it is frequently said, change comes mostly from young people and, and is mostly coming from young people. Um, and I think what happens is Washington is this intimidating place where everyone pretends really you have to be in the UPS model. You got to go start at the ground floor and work your way up. Um, and you know, there's truth to that in terms of jobs, but there's not actually truth to that in terms of activism. So the first thing is do not believe it if somebody says you're too young. Because frankly, when you're too young, it's when you're willing to take those big risks. It's when you're kind of maybe too not smart enough to know better that you're gonna do the bolder, bigger, riskier, more innovative idea that actually winds up being the big success. Um, so I tell people a lot, if, if you have an idea, if you're at your highest moment in passion and concern about an issue, or at your, your lowest moment of passion and concern about an issue, that's a good time to start. Um, don't wait to start. Um, starting is a is a moment. Um, my grandmother used to tell us that starting was half finished. Um, that's how she got us to do love chores, that. right? So just start, and then you're half finished. Uh, <laughs> so it, it gives you a more optimistic way to look at a challenge, right? But I just tell people to start, and to start from that place that is passionate and that's thoughtful, um, and that really wants to make a difference, and let their chips then it, let that become the educational environment for you. You will learn a lot. You will fail a little, uh, maybe even a lot uh, along the way, but it is the starting and then the learning um, that becomes the most important element of whether you're going to be successful or not. Um, the second thing I tell people is to be um, is to be really disciplined. Is that this is not something you know? We, we do not sit around tables in Washington and hold hands and sing kumbaya and make change happen. That is not how it happens. Um, it is counting votes. It is having difficult conversations. It is disciplining coalitions. The hard work of it. Is, and that's why I wrote the book, is to let people know that this is possible. It's very doable, but there's really hard work and discipline and strategy that you have to bring to the table. Um, and as long as you put, take, kind of take off the rose-colored glasses and kind of put on the work goggles, you can, you can see your way through to whatever vision um, you believe in.
But that is sound advice. And I wish you all the luck in the world on Thank the book. Thank you. Again, it's Appreciate called it. Helping the Good Do Better, How White Hat Lobbyist Advocates for Social Change. I checked on this on the way here today. You can find it on Amazon. You can. Uh, as yeah. of this week. And it's number one in philanthropy and charities this morning. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with that, that's all the time we have on this episode of 80 Proof Politics. Remember, no matter what you think of the current state of politics in Washington, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's still room to fill your drink. Tom, thanks again. Great. Cheers. Thank you. Let's have another one. <laughs> Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.